This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Vanity Fair. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to. And the Oscar goes to. The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. And David Canfield. Hi. And Rebecca Ford. Hello. We have a lot to talk about. The Critics' Choice nominations are fresh as we discuss this. The Golden Globe nominations are just a few days behind that. Before that, there was AFI. There's the Chicago Film Critics. There's the National Board of Review. There's just awards nominations being given out all over the place. And a lot of the same names coming out. And then some uh, some surprises in some areas where we feel like we don't quite know what's going on and areas where we're getting a lot of clarity. Um, so I guess to go in reverse chronological order, I think the, the Critics' Choice Award and the Golden Globes can sort of go hand in hand. There's a lot of overlap in categories there. And I think the title overlap in it is Barbie. It's not just that Barbie uh, (laughs) did really well in these nominations, but it uh, led the tally in both Critics' Choice and Golden Globes. Partly thanks to having three original song contenders. I think we can't uh, underestimate that factor in there, but um, I'm not sure it changes how much I think Barbie's a contender. I think we all thought it was going to be really strong, but uh, it sure is a big boost for them. Um, do you do you guys agree that Barbie really is the like the reigning champ uh, thus far of this group? Yeah, I think the fact that it also has this narrative of the most Critics' Choice nominations ever, I guess, for any film. Uh, you know, I saw that headline and I was like, oh, that feels like something, even though there's, you know, we have to remember there's no overlap between these two groups in the Academy, but um, it it definitely helps the film's narrative because I think we're all sort of just wondering how seriously the Academy might take this film, but to me, it feels significant for them. My, My takeaway was just over the past week, maybe because we've seen movies like Killers of the Flower Moon winning critics' prizes and we've seen... Uh, you know, and more movies have been coming out lately. Um, we've been a little bit quiet on Barbenheimer, but it was kind of a very loud reminder that the season's going to be kind of defined by that and these two movies. And I, I, I would not be surprised if that's even what the Best Picture race came down to. It just feels like every time we get a new, you know, slate of nominations or announcement of of winners, it, it just feels like those two movies are the story. They have so much going on for them below the line, whether it is, you know, Barbie's multiple original songs or Oppenheimer, you know, slated to pick up stuff like cinematography and, um, and score. And it, it makes sense for us to be very focused on them at the top of the ticket and to see what happens below them. That doesn't mean anything else, nothing else can win, but um, yeah, I, I felt like Rebecca. I saw that headline around Barbie, and I was like, "Yeah, this is this is a major movie this season, and it will continue to be a force." 
I think we should also note that uh, Killers of the Flower Moon was the one that won Best Film from the National Board of Review, which was announced last week uh, after being named the same from New York Film Critics Circle. And Richard, when your critics group uh, really went so hard for Killers of the Flower Moon, I think a lot of us who were like, oh, Scorsese's taken for granted. Everyone knows he's made a masterpiece. It won't get enough attention. I, I was feeling more bullish on it. And I think it has been, you know, a little overshadowed by Barbie and Oppenheimer in these kind of larger televised award shows nominations this week. But uh, Richard, do you still feel like it's uh, getting more respect than maybe we expected? Yeah, I mean, I think it has the the twin forces of, of it being a Scorsese movie and people, I don't know, maybe thinking he's nearing something of the end of his career and wanting to reward him for that. I mean, in the way that they gave The Irishman a ton of nominations, but then it didn't win anything. So maybe this is a kind of a correction for that, for a movie that people seem to like more than The Irishman. And then you have the other side of it, which is the Lily Gladstone of it all, the social justice angle, which, yes, has come under some fire, but I don't know that a lot of that discourse, much of which has been online, um, has really gotten to voting bodies in, you know, kind of toward the top of the industry, Golden Globes, and and certainly the Academy over the years has seemed a little bit deaf to some of the nuances of discourse. So I think that Flower Moon having both of those things working for it is great. That could just mean Lily Gladstone wins and that's it for the whole movie. Um, but I don't know. It, it feels pretty strong at the moment, although it's a long, grim sit. And if there are Academy members who still haven't seen it, maybe it's easier for them to just say, but I already saw Oppenheimer. I already saw Barbie. <laughs> I already saw Oppenheimer, which is set in the American Southwest-ish. I don't need to new to right. another one. Um, when you talk about the discourse, Richard, I assume you mean just kind of some of the discussion that happened when the film came out about the way it depicts the Osage, like whether or not it is enough of an Osage story. I, that story hasn't yeah. changed much in the last couple months, right? I think it's just been a lot of back and forth about like people saying, well, this is coming from the wrong perspective. It centers the wrong people. It may be well-intentioned, but it kind of commits the same sins it's condemning in a way. You know, there was, I heard an episode of like an NPR podcast about it. And and then I think people will, other people will push back on that and say, well, look at all of the people from the Osage Nation who were involved in the making of the film. And, and you know, Gladstone has been a fierce supporter of it. She's not from the Osage Nation, but like, you know, she's, she's been vocal about she's invested in the movie um as are a lot of other people so i again i don't i don't think that that discourse um which is healthy i mean there should be this kind of talk about about movies about such hot button issues i don't think it will ding it it maybe actually even just kind of elevates its profile as one of the most talked about movies of the season if not the year and it does seem that the people behind it are very well aware, but the, the more focus they put on Lily Gladstone, the more they kind of argue back of like, here's who the story is actually about. I was noticing there was a report of a uh, some kind of London event for Killers of the Flower Moon that Deadline wrote up and Leonardo DiCaprio was there and like actually talking to the press in like kind of a casual situation, which almost mm -hmm. never happens. And he mentioned Lily Gladstone as much as possible as he did in his Golden Globe statement. Like it's all all the river of attention flows right back to her, which I think is still really smart. I do think the conversation around her prominence in the film as a lead is is ongoing to an extent to what Richard was saying earlier. The L.A. film critics named her the runner-up for Outstanding Supporting Performance, um, which got plenty of chatter uh, online. This is like a, like a um, West Coast, East Coast like shot across the bow, right? It, it really did feel that way. Uh, <laughs> because it's not like she won it either, so it was there's something a little trollish about it, in my opinion, but... Anyway, um, and then Matthew Stewart, who does these great uh, screen time breakdowns, did one for Killers of the Flower Moon, and it was like another kind of Rorschach test with Lily Gladstone. I think she's in, you know, less than a third of the movie, but maybe a little bit more than others were um, suggesting or assumed. So again, it was sort of like arguments over whether or not it constituted a lead performance. Um, she's here to stay in this category, but it just feels like the topic keeps coming up. And so I'm now at the point where I don't think it will stop coming up because clearly there are enough people who feel strongly that um, there is some something disingenuous about it. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with that, but um, I do wonder how it will impact her going forward because she does feel like a very strong frontrunner. I just can't remember when category fraud has ever really had an impact. Like, I guess the example I think of is Kate Winslet in The Reader, where they campaigned her as supporting and people said, this is nonsense, she's a lead, and then she won the award. Like, in the reverse, I don't, I feel like it usually just happens. Yep. 
I mean, I remember when everyone was predicting Michelle Williams would be, not everyone, but a good number of people were predicting Michelle Williams would still be nominated and supporting for The Fablemans because the Academy decides, and that didn't happen. She was nominated for Best Actress. I would be stunned if Lily Gladstone is not nominated for Best Actress. But I think the the point that, to the point that Richard was making, I'm more interested in it as far as it relates to the movie and that campaign, because, you know, they are in the Best Picture conversation right now, and- I think that's largely because they have very cannily positioned Lily Gladstone as the story of the movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how far that gets them versus how cynically some take that is probably the bigger question than whether or not she can go forward in Best Actress, which she pretty obviously can. I mean, I, I haven't seen the movie since June. And honestly, the amount of attention on her in the campaign, I think I'm remembering her being in more of the movie than she yeah, is right. because they're so focused on her. It's it's working. They also have to go at this until March, you know, and they've mm-hmm. done a lot. I feel like Flower Moon really like came out of the gate, you know, in the biggest way once people were able to promote. And I just wonder if they might kind of exhaust people or not, not like not that the movie wears out its welcome, but that just attention shifts to something newer and that has been quieter thus far. What would that be at this point? Uh, Poor things, maybe. Anyone can answer. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what the answer to that is. I don't know what would feel fresh. Like, there's not a million dollar baby is such an old example at this point. But, you know, I don't think we'll talk about Iron Claw later. I don't think that's going to be the like late year release that's going to change everything here. Like, we all the cards are on the table. So, how a conversation shifts is kind of the thing we can't see coming. I do feel like Color Purple is definitely a later campaign. It's not as late as those examples you're using, but you can tell they're they're really like blitzing the media right now. There's been a few, quite a few covers and panels and all of that in the last week or so. So I wonder, you know, they did pretty well with Critics' Choice today. If if that momentum, I mean, it's hard because we're in this especially weird year where everyone is out right now because they couldn't be for the last few months. So it, nothing feels quiet at the moment. Mm. So it does feel like there, there, there are risks for burnout, especially those front runners that have been out and about a lot. And again, everyone is out for movies, two movies in particular, that everyone has seen. And that just lets them get further ahead, from what I can tell. Um, but to the to the example of like a coda, I mean, the whole reason for that surge was, you know, didn't do anything on streaming when Apple released it in August, but it was Academy members popping in their screeners at home or watching it on the portal and all kind of rallying around it. I mean, it happened in a very quiet way, even as kind of concurrently everyone was falling in love with that cast on the trail. So it's it's hard to know what kind of movie builds that kind of organic momentum, or especially whether a movie could even come close to that in a year where you have two movies that are so popular and so bound to get a ton of nominations. Yeah, I think Barbie and Oppenheimer changed the dynamic in a way mm-hmm. that's kind of hard for us to wrap our head around. There just hasn't been one movie this big and this prominent in the uh, Best Picture race, I don't even remember how long, like what what the last example would be. And to have two of them and having been this like twin phenomenon that like we're not sick of talking about yet, like it mm-hmm. is really hard for, for for that Best Picture momentum. I think we can talk about other categories where there's, you know, more movement happening there. But it's kind of Barbie and Oppenheimer and then I think Killers of the Flower Moon and then, you know, seven more slots to figure out. All the Academy has to do is find a way to give best picture to both of them. And then we'll just all, all our heads will fall off and we will never cover the Oscars They're going to bring back the popular movie award again. We're all going to get mad. And, but then they're both going to have Oscars and you have to decide if that was worth it. <laughs> I also think that uh, with the preferential ballot for best picture, the odds of people putting Flower Moon number one, Oppenheimer two, or or Oppenheimer one, Flower Moon two, I feel like are really high. Those movies seem to be appealing to the same vague demographics mm-hmm. of people. And um, which, you know, means that, that, that probably something like David's choice, which, you know, if he doesn't get that prediction right, we, he is going to prison. Um, so he should be really worried right now because <laughs> I feel like Holdovers was going to be number two in a lot of ballots. But now it just feels like the Oppenheimer, Flower, Moon binary has become sort of the narrative. And so one, I just feel like one of those has to win based on everything I've seen. But like, who knows? There's, there's many more months to go. 
I both agree and I'm not letting go. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I said that there were seven more spots to fill in Best Picture, but I kind of I think we would all agree there's probably five locked in. Uh, you would add the holdovers and poor things to those top three. I have a really hard time imagining a Best Picture lineup that doesn't include those five. And then after that is where the questions emerge, I think. If we want to get to the, you know, all of the lists that have come out uh, over the past week, it does feel like also maestro, American fiction, and past lives have been really, really consistently cited. Mm -hmm. Um, I think maestro is, I don't think it's underperformed with critics awards. It hasn't really been present at all with critics awards, um, but that can happen uh, to movies that are still well positioned for Oscars. And I think it's, it's shown up everywhere it's needed to. I think the big question is beyond those eight. And certainly I agree with you, Katie, that those last three, like there could be a surprise and one of them could miss. Um, you know, is it just going to be filled out by international films? Because we've had uh, we had two last year, um, neither of which were cited by Critics' Choice, for example, which were not eligible for AFI, which is a pretty good predictor. So um, in that event, then you look to movies like Anatomy of a Fall, Zone of Interest. It doesn't feel like any other international movies have been able to break through, at least so far. Yeah. And you didn't mention May-December there, which I think is an interesting one to to consider in, as a bubble position, um, because it did really well at the Golden Globes, didn't make the Critics' Choice top 10. Not like, not a crazy surprise, but I would have expected it to be there. Um, and I think Todd Haynes' movies have broke our, broken our hearts enough at the Oscars in the past that everyone's afraid to get their hopes up. But it does still feel like it's in a very strong position there to me, too. Yeah, I agree. And there's also the question of movie a movie like The Color Purple, which mm-hmm. has missed a lot of really key precursors already. And they're not filled with Academy overlap, but a picture starts to emerge of this movie not necessarily making it through on, on a number of consensus votes. You know, AFI, I wrote about this when we covered the top 10 last week, they have not missed an American movie nominated for Best Picture in years. And they did screen it, and they did not include it. And that's a pretty worrying sign, since they tend to include, you know, broader movies like they included across the Spider-Verse over that movie. Yeah. Um, so there are big questions there, um, but that doesn't mean it's over. It's just like we are starting to get a sense of which movies are resonating more than not. And May-December is a movie that has showed up, I think, more than any of us were expecting uh, a week ago, which is very good news for me. <laughs> but again, to the reverse, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to connect with the industry. We still haven't really heard from any industry groups. Yeah, I feel like that AFI list, which had made December, looks really good for Best Picture if you pull out Across the Spider-Verse and you put something in there. But what, mm-hmm. yeah, is it Anatomy of a Fall? Is it zone of interest is it the color purple I d- yeah, air I d- air being the other air, air's done pretty well air ha- air did very well at the golden globes mm-hmm. uh less it didn't make the critics choice picture but it made ensemble like it's it's still shaking around in there anyway yeah but that li- that afi list is, looks very strong i think David, when you say they haven't missed an American film, I, I assume you mean something like, you know afi didn't have drive my car and drive my car kind of jumps in and replaces something that was on their list right yeah, so last year they had Nope, She Said, and um, The Woman King, and those were replaced by All Quiet on the Western Front, Triangle of Sadness, and The Banshees of Inisherin, none of which were eligible. Although I think oh, Banshees yes. won a special award there, because they sometimes do that for big contenders that aren't technically eligible. And then the year before that, uh, they included Tick, Tick, Boom, and The Tragedy of Macbeth, and they missed Belfast, which was not eligible, and Drive My Car, which was not eligible. So if you also look at the Critics' Choice list, they it's the same story. They missed the international features. They missed Drive My Car. They missed All Quiet. They missed Triangle of Sadness. And so I think it's reasonable to, I think Rebecca's exactly right, to assume that if you look at that AFI list, you pick out one or two movies you imagine it's some combination of anatomy, zone of interest, or a movie that, you know, has that kind of drive-my-car-like or all-quiet-like surge. It would have to be even later this year, but um, that just seems to be the way the Academy has worked of late, is they're more international, and so they tend to not over-nominate, you know, big studio American contenders, which is why I'm, you know, Air is a movie that I'm just, I'm not sure makes a lot of sense for them to go out on a limb for at this point. 
I guess the question is, you know, in these past couple of years, they've been weird. They've been weird for releases. Like the the Academy's international bent is something we're very familiar with. But in a year where you have not only Barbie and Oppenheimer, but a Scorsese movie, an Alexander Payne movie, a Todd Haynes movie, like does the American contingent get so strong that there's not as much room for a drive my car or an all quiet on the Western front? I feel like when we're talking director, we may not see that, but I, yes. I do feel like with picture, because the Academy is so big and much more international now, I think we're still going to see one get in at least um, this year as well. Can I bring up one more um, precursor that's interesting? Please, uh, there's so many. Which doesn't get talked about as much, but the European Film Awards are, it's a very notable precursor because there is Academy overlap. It's it's the most prestigious European voting body. There's a lot of overlap um, in terms of the international body of the Academy and Anatomy of a Fall just totally swept. And that's notable for a number of reasons because you had movies, even a movie like Zone of Interest, uh, competing there. Um, but last year, Triangle of Sadness pulled that off. And it was on the bubble with the Oscars until the end. I think we predicted it. It was like 10 or 11 for us. Um, but then it got into picture, director, and screenplay. Um, and that can be a signal of of where that side of the Academy is leaning. So I, I saw that and I was like, oh, this is a movie, especially coupled with all those Golden Globe nominations. And the Globes are bigger and more international now for whatever that will mean. Um, it seems like that is kind of the pick. Uh, and mm-hmm. then it's a question of whether you can get more beyond that. I think Oscars wise, like I think Anatomy of a Fall could put up a good fight against Barbie and screenplay, like for winning. Mm. Oh man, that category is wild. <laughs> like in terms of the competition, <laughs> and I mean both both the screenplay categories are incredibly competitive. Um, also fascinating that they're both written by um, I don't know if they're all married, but like just by couples who wrote those screenplays together and um, mm-hmm. have very different takes on relationships between men and women. <laughs> I would say. But I do, I wonder about Justin Triette and Best Director. Um, David and Rebecca, I think we were talking about the idea that, like, you could easily see someone like Alexander Payne, Greta Gerwig, Bradley Cooper not get in, and Justin Triette and Jonathan Glazer get in for Anatomy of a Fall and Zone of Interest. Like, really, like, seemingly sure things bumped out um, because there's only five slots in there, unlike the 10 in Best Picture. I'm kind of on tenterhooks about how that's going to turn out. I think that's like one of the most exciting categories this year because it's going to be heartbreaking in one way or the other. You know, there's just there's just too many like you have for Alexander. I mean, so many names we know to be on the bubble, but also like, uh, you know, I still have hope for Celine Song and and you just you never know what that branch is going to do, I think. Yeah, they can't honor all these, you know, established big names and also try to put in someone exciting and new this year. There's just too many. Yeah. And Celine Song feels like somebody they would go for, too. Right. You know, it's so it's stacked. And maybe it is what you were saying, Katie, about Best Picture is true and Best Director. Like, maybe it is just too crowded. I, I don't know. I think we've all been nervous about Greta Gerwig specifically because um, imagining the director's branch specifically being kind of snobby, like they have just been known to overlook people who made very widely beloved movies in favor of Cold War or something like that. Um, And I wonder if the dominance of Barbie at the Golden Globes and Critics' Choice, again, different voting group, but just a lot of attention, a lot of stamps of approval. I wonder if that's going to help kind of make her more of a sure thing in that category. Yeah, I mean, the way you're saying it, it could hurt. Like if... If you're saying, oh, then the voters of that branch are like, well, mm-hmm. come on, guys. Like, yeah. Barbie got all these wins already. Let's, they'll honor her. They'll honor it other places. Let's give it to somebody. Yeah, I, I, I do think it that's possible. It could hurt her chances in that category specifically. I do think if she gets left out of Best Director, it will be a disaster. <laughs> like, people <laughs> will lose their minds. <laughs> and I would really like for that not to happen. So uh, let's just work on that, please. Yeah. I think that the DGA five will definitely include her, you know, and then it's go, you go from there to see if how the branch alters that list. Um, but she and Alexander Payne, I, I think, you know, in that top five of Nolan Payne, Scorsese, Lanthimos and Gerwig, like she and Payne are probably the most vulnerable with the directing branch and who they would go for instead is like we're saying it's such a long list that it may help them stay secure or it may there may be somebody who really swiftly rises um like a Justine Trier. Yeah. 
I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new a translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So we've talked about Best Picture Forever, but the acting races have kind of come more into focus over the past week. Um, as we were saying before, I think Lily Gladstone is still in this really dominant position. She has been nominated absolutely everywhere. She's won a strong number of critics' awards. Um, Best Actor remains really interesting and complicated. Um, not everyone, the, the Franz Rogowski sweep has not started yet. I'm sorry, David, that uh, <laughs> you were not able to will that into existence. Um, but he did, you know, win that major award in New York. But Paul Giamatti is sort of the most awarded uh, from critics groups, but it's really kind of all over the place. I think I'm really kind of convinced that's going to be a nail biter until the very end. Do you guys see a trend that I don't? No, I, I agree. I think that he is... Um... Paul Giamatti is very pleasantly in the thick of it. I wasn't sure how much support he'd have for a win at least. I do not I do not know who's winning that category. I've said that every time the topic <laughs> has come up and I I still do not know. There are I think now pretty compelling arguments to be made for at least 3 of them and maybe even more, you know, depending on where an American fiction can go. Um I, I don't know, but it's it's really stacked. I'm glad our Giamatti discussion and speech has inspired everyone to give him his Katie's flowers. had influence this season. Like I am really running that shadow campaign as best I can. Yeah, I feel I feel pretty good about him. I, I think it's exciting to see Jeffrey Wright also get all this attention and be very successful this early on. It's a long road, so I yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to pick today either, but I, I think we have to see what happens, you know, in the next couple months, because uh, I don't know who wins that one either. I'm really torn between thinking that Killian Murphy is being uh, taken for granted, maybe in the way I was afraid Scorsese would be. And also like, well, Oppenheimer has enough. I don't need to throw so much weight behind him. I honestly can't decide because he's so remarkable in that. But David, when you say those three, I think, you know, you mean the sense that the locks for nominations, at least, are Murphy, Giamatti and Wright. And then there's two slots that we can fight over forever. I was thinking Murphy, Giamatti, and Cooper. Ah, see, I was for... going to ask about Cooper next. I think that he um, he's just going to find a ton of industry support for the performance. I, I would mm. be, you know, there's a level of transformation and a you know a level of fame that those two don't quite have um, that I think will translate like very well to a SAG nomination, for instance. But they all bring something kind of different, and they are all they all make sense as winners. I think Jeffrey Wright's totally in that conversation too. I think because American fiction is not you know racking up you know double digit nomination totals anywhere, um, and has not been like a runaway hit with a major show yet. I'm still waiting to see just how far it can go because I, I rewatched that movie actually. Uh, it was a Hanukkah viewing with my family, mm. and I think he's really amazing in the movie. You know, I've I've been a fan of his for a long time and it's honestly one of my favorite performances of his even on that standard, but it's it's a pretty subtle performance. And subtler than I remembered it actually. Um it is very funny, but it's it's pretty deadpan and 
Um, there's a ton of heart to it. And yeah, it's it would be an interesting change of pace for a category that honored Brendan Fraser for The Whale last year, for instance. Um, and I'll leave it at that. But it's, yeah, it's it's a, um, in a good way, it is not Oscar Beatty. It's it's really a rich and, and subtle performance in a lot of ways. But if we're talking Oscar Beatty, we're talking Cooper, right? Right. It, it, that's, <laughs> and that's what I mean. That's exactly. It's like he has that perfect recipe of, I transformed how I look. I spent six years practicing six minutes of a performance. I Like, does the Academy just, can they still not deny that kind of narrative? Because it's, like, I haven't heard Killian Murphy's narrative, and, and, and that's not a great sign to me, you know, that I don't know what he, you know, everyone is, this is the moment where they're crafting their stories. And I, I also think it would benefit Killian if his very big co-stars would sort of do what these other co-stars have been doing and pointing out what he did for that role. Oh, um, I think they have been. I feel like there's any time you hear from some of those other people, they they put it right back onto him. You are more tapped into the Oppenheimer <laughs> than <laughs> I am. in my bloodstream. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, maybe it's just it's just my own blind spot. But yeah, I, I, I would love to see RDJ and all of them out there really pointing out. Because that, that movie, you know, it is his performance, so... Yeah, I mean, I think that um, Bradley Cooper, who is somewhat press shy, but like he did the actors on actors, the, the the variety series with Emma Stone, and it's probably one of the more charming ones. I mean, Taraji and Jeffrey Wright have a really good one too, but Bradley Cooper in that, like as Emma Stone looks on with like awe, talks about how he actually did direct or conduct rather that symphony. Um, he didn't get it right the first day, came back the next day, did one take, and that's what's in the movie. And it's like kind of a remarkable thing. And I guess, I guess the question would be, well, is that a feat of acting or direction or both? And so I just think the more the Bradley Cooper talks about it and the more that movie sinks in, it's still pretty brand new, you know, unless you were at the fall festivals. Yeah. Or, or I just think that like, that's pretty hard to beat. I think also to the Giamatti and Jeffrey Wright of it all, like, is there room for two dyspeptic academics with sort of frustrated writing <laughs> careers? Like, I, I don't know. It's interesting how this category has so many people with kind of the, like, uh, done wrong by the Academy narrative in a lot of different ways. Like, Jeffrey Wright's been kind of overdue for a nomination forever. Killian Murphy maybe has like, had less of, like, an Oscar, obvious Oscar movie, but... He's been great for a long time. Has never been nominated. Giamatti infamously gets snubbed for Sideways. Uh, Bradley Cooper has been nominated so many times has never won. And even Leonardo DiCaprio like was very famously overdue for an Oscar until yeah. he finally won. And then Coleman Domingo for Rustin. Like, there's a lot of narratives to pull on there, um, and it really just might be a battle of who's is the strongest and most willing to kind of chase after it. Yeah, it's it's always been a really top heavy category. I mean that that was evident really out of. Telluride and Toronto and Venice. It's that has not changed. And I do think I kind of see four locks or near locks in what we're talking about um, with Wright, Cooper, Murphy, and um, Giamatti as of now. I mean, that could definitely change. And a lot of there was a lot of assumption that DiCaprio would get in, there was a lot of assumption that Coleman Domingo would get in. I am not personally ruling out Andrew Scott. I think he'll get in at BAFTA and have a big level of support on that end in the same way Paul Meskel did mm-hmm. So for After Sun. Um, so, and that's kind of it. And even then, Scott is, you know, kind of a, it's like a bit of a hope diction. I'm, I'm, I'm self-aware enough to say that. But I, I do think that that's it. So Yeah. We're talking about seven people for five slots, but incredibly competitive competition. Yeah, with, with four that are maybe more or less decided. I yeah. mean, at this point, just given the overall strength of the holdovers and the fact that Giamatti has not kind of been left out of that conversation, because he was the one I was worried about. Um, I, I just I, it's very hard to imagine any of them missing. Um, To go from best actor to best supporting actor, we talked a lot about Charles Melton last week. He is still continuing to kind of show up everywhere and really do uh, everything that he needs to do. But, you know, when you get these long list of nominations, you kind of get reminded like, oh, God, he's in the mix against Robert De Niro and Robert Downey Jr. and Ryan Gosling. It's not <laughs> the easiest road. Um, you know, I, I love seeing that Sterling K. Brown got in for um, Critics' Choice. Yeah. Rebecca, your uh, piece with him about his character in American Fiction that ran this week was really terrific. But I think it was the it was the Golden Globes list where I kind of saw, okay, this is six names. I think all of the five 
Oscar nominees are here, but I don't know who's mm-hmm. going to fall out. And I think you guys agree with me there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but who falls out? It's just, <laughs> <laughs> just give six. It's fine, guys. It's just, I, I don't know if I could pick today who you cut from that list, right? Because yeah. they had, let's see, Defoe, De Niro, Downey Jr., Gosling, Melton, and Ruffalo. Oh, God. Yeah. Well, so Defoe didn't make Critics' Choice and got uh, replaced by Sterling right. K. Brown, but otherwise it's basically the same. So I guess in theory you could say he's the most vulnerable there, but, like, this guy got nominated for At Eternity's Gate. Like, I do not rule out Willem Dafoe at yeah, any he's, point. Yeah. He's kind of, he's like Academy catnip. I, I find it hard. It's also Ooh, interesting that, like, let's say De Niro drops out. Then you have Melton as the newcomer. And then Defoe, Downey Jr., Gosling, and Ruffalo, four actors who people would probably say, oh, they should have won an Oscar by now. And so they all four yeah. of them have narratives, you know, that are like that. And whether Melton can, maybe they cancel each other out and Melton just, you know, sails to a win. Um, or the four of them just the do The Adrian Brody effect. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, De Niro dropping out for like an incredible performance in a movie with his most famous collaborator. <laughs> like, that's the kind of competition we're talking about here. He is so good in that movie. On a rewatch, it would be a shame if he doesn't make it. But I think he is just vulnerable because he's Robert De Niro. I remember when he fell off on The Irishman kind of early, and then he was just sort of forgotten about in that race. Yeah. Um, and in this one, he's getting you know all the all the nominations so far, but there is still that sense of you know will he be at the top of enough ballots versus a lot of these other people. I mean, I, I moderated a Q and A with Willem Dafoe. Uh, and it was there's a lot of passion for him, and I think even that performance it it plays really well. He's kind of the heart of the movie, mm-hmm. and Ruffalo was I don't want to say Discovery, it's Mark Ruffalo, but mm-hmm. like it was such a Gonzo comic performance that it was like wow, coming out of Venice especially. But Defoe is is right there with him in terms of prominence and and the effectiveness of the performance. And as we've talked about this category just keeps doing double nominees mm-hmm. uh, from a film. And that seems like the film that would do it this year. He's the only nice dad in the race this year. Uh, <laughs> and th- with, li- nice dads win the supporting actor all the time. Uh, so that's a, a certain edge. Did he get nominated for the Florida Project? Speaking of like nice. Yes, okay, see, yep, there you go. Willem Dafoe is like a kindly uh, paternal figure. It's hard to beat. And then just to close out the acting categories discussion with supporting actress, um, I think we talked last week about Danielle Brooks really kind of rising from the color purple. And she has shown up all over the place, kind of the way that she needs to. Even, um, you know, the color purple missed out on a musical or comedy category at the Golden Globes, which is a pretty significant miss for that movie. Um, It did make Mm -hmm. the Critics' Choice top list. Um, But Danielle Brooks is kind of been writing out the entire thing. Um, And I think the idea that she is rising in the category is correct. But Dave Joy Randolph is winning. Everything. Everything. <laughs> Everything. I had I did not realize it until David, you kind of pointed out someone had put it on a spreadsheet. Like she is just unstoppable right now. Yeah. She's like the I remember when Regina King won everything for If Beale Street Could Talk. It's similar to that. Just complete sweep. So it would be foolish not to predict her to win right now. I yeah. mean, especially with the color purple waning a little bit. Um, until someone else takes that mantle. She is the front runner. Do we feel any Front runner concern. I just think back to Angela Bassett last year, which is a very different narrative, but we yeah. were all so sure. I mean, obviously that was more of like a career legacy win situation, which this is this is more of the discovery narrative. But I feel like this is one of those categories where if you're a front runner early, it's dangerous to see what happens later. But yeah, I mean now she seems unbeatable, but I'm I'm nervous. <laughs> <laughs> the the thing with that category that was so strange was, you know, Bassett didn't really win a lot of critics awards. Mm, she won. Sure. It was when she won. I think the Globe was first, and she kind of assumed that pole position. Yeah. You know, she has the one amazing scene in in Black Panther, but it wasn't a performance that got talked about that much until she sort of became the front runner in the sort of career win narrative that you're talking about, Rebecca. And the movie wasn't that well liked either. Yeah. And the movie wasn't that but then it was placed against Jamie Lee Curtis, who also, you know, you wouldn't put name that her best performance and everything everywhere all at once or anything. And it was just this weird, like, oh, this is kind of what we're left with. It will be a career win and that's, you know, where regardless of who it is. But I think the level of acclaim for 
Divine Joy Randolph and Daniel Brooks in those two movies alone, and you could even get into a, a Jodie Foster um, further down the line. Um, it's a at least right now a more robust category with performances. I would think that people are more excited about, and the fact that Randolph is still winning everything, given that, um, I think is a better sign. But yeah, I mean. I was rooting for Laurie Metcalf for Lady Bird. She won a ton of these early on. Yeah. And then she was kind of mm-hmm. just the nominee without yeah. much of a chance. So it, it happens. The ghost um, of um the ghost of Lauren Bacall just smokily whispered in my ear. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Don't trust front runner status. <laughs> well, and technically Juliet Binoche is still in that supporting actress category for the taste of things too. So look, she's coming she's coming right back. Yeah, I mean I could see in the in the six supporting actresses nominated at the Globes, Rosamund Pike easily drops out, and then you're, there's your five. You know, yeah. um, I think that Emily Blunt being in there pretty like because that was kind of a question mark. Like, oh, she could get in, although it's a lot of men. But I think that that's a good a good indicator, even though again it is just the HFPA. But um, well, I guess they have an expanded votership now. Um, I think for me, the other big question, if you were to do that, that being the five is Julianne Moore from May December, who has not shown up really. I think a lot of people were sort of like, is she lead? Is she supporting? We talked about it on this podcast. Um, Based on screen time, she's pretty supporting, but she's pretty central to the story as well. So I don't know. And so if Pike and Moore dropped out, is there a fifth actress that we're forgetting about or that I'm forgetting about? Well, at um, at Critics' Choice, America Ferreira made it in mm-hmm. instead of Rosamund Pike, and I like I wouldn't count her out at this point at all. I think you know Barbie versus Oscar Snobbery is the open question I keep worrying about, but like she's been everywhere with that movie. She's also been working a really long time and has not had a showcase like this. Like I think there's a lot of power there. Yeah, I think she's the one who, especially like if we remember when Tom Hardy was not made for the revenant after not showing up anywhere like if the movie just gets a total embrace mm-hmm. she feels like an a prime candidate to sort of quote unquote surprise i mean i don't know if it would be a huge surprise um cuz she has been campaigning a lot and she has a big role in the movie and and a monologue that is pretty central to people's memories of it and and things that really stuck out about it yeah i always think of that that kind of slot as being like the Rachel McAdams for spotlight where you're like oh okay yes exactly yeah. exactly exactly Man, yeah. speaking of Rachel McAdams, though, I'm really, really mad that she didn't get in at Critics' Choice. I cannot believe that didn't happen. <laughs> she was at the top of my ballot. Why wasn't she at the top of everyone else's ballot? Um, I really want that to happen. It just feels like that, that might have been the end of the road. Yes. Well, she, didn't she win at L.A.? She in won one of two at L.A., right? Yeah, it was a tie for supporting performance. Well, it's not a tie because they give it to two people. Right. It's right. Just two she people. and Dave Enjoy yeah. Randolph both right. won. Right. right. So that's that's a nice little something. Yes. I mean, she has gotten recognition for this wonderful performance in a movie that came out in the spring. And like, I, you know, you always have to really hedge your bets there. Um, but, you know, I wanted that momentum to go further. It's always very nice and very rare when a great performance in a small movie that will not get any other nominations gets in. But I so I always wonder, like, how did Brian Tyree Henry do it last year? Because it was such yeah. a pleasant, un oscar surprise. And she kind of feels like the person who would do that this year because made. I was thinking about Charles Melton, but now that movie is a little bit stronger overall where, I mean, I think Julianne Moore can definitely get in. The screenplay is probably going to get in. It could get into picture. Um, so, yeah, I think it's someone like Rachel McAdams where it's like if you watch that movie, she very obviously should be in the conversation. And it's frustrating to me that that movie's not in the conversation in many ways because it's such a wonderful adaptation and and so thoughtfully made. But she's the highlight and she's the story in many ways of that adaptation and and the expansion of that role. So I'll just we just got to keep banging that drum, Katie. (laughs) I'm here for it. Well, I mean, you talk about low nominees, though. I did notice that Annette Bening didn't get in at Critics' Choice for Best Actress, which is kind of crazy. So maybe Jodie Foster winds up being a low nominee for Nyad somehow, which would be a very odd outcome for that movie. I mean, I'd be shocked if Bening doesn't get in at SAG. Like, I think that there will be a... A pretty clear path for her to get into the five in the end. Yeah, and, and the swimming branch at SAG is so strong. Um, <laughs> not a lot of critics are, go swimming, you know, so. After, not SAG. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, all the swimmers are in after. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. 
people want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a, a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Well, to wrap up this show, we should talk about a movie that is coming out soon. I believe it's coming out on Christmas Day. The review embargo has finally lifted. It did not get any nominations from Critics' Choice or Golden Globes, which I think for those of us who have seen it is not a huge surprise, but interesting. We're talking about The Iron Claw, which is an A24 release. It's from Sean Durkin, a filmmaker I believe all of us are huge fans of. Um, And when we heard he had a movie coming out wide on Christmas Day, we were like, huh. That sounds like a uh, interesting way to spend <laughs> Christmas with your family, especially since it is about a Texas wrestling dynasty where, spoiler alert, many, many terrible things happen to this family. Um, Zach Efron's the star. It's got Jeremy Allen White, Harris Dickinson, um, a lot of other good supporting players. Richard, you, rev- you are going to review it. Um, I think you are you put the Ness at number one on your list of films of 2020. So you were very primed for a Sean Durkin experience. Yeah. Um, and how did that pan out for you? It's not similar in scale to his past two films, which are these little moody kind of chamber pieces. Um, This is kind of a a tragic epic in a way. It spans several years, at least. Um, I I thought it was interesting. It looks great because that's the kind of thing Sean Durkin does. I think I just had a hard time locking into the story because it kind of feels like a list of sad things. I don't feel like... Uh, oddly, given that he's really good at characterization in general, I don't think that Durkin really found these people. I don't really think he he allowed himself or the audience time to get to know them, and thus care about this you know succession of horrors that ha- that befalls them. I think the performances are, are are pretty notable. Zac Efron being you know well physically transformed in in a kind of almost alarming way, um, but also really digging mm-hmm. into a dark, gritty A24 drama coming out on Christmas Day. I mean, that's not the trajectory I saw Zac Efron's career going uh, at any point, really, uh, since I've been aware of him. Uh, And that's interesting. And I think that he could still be something of a wild card. I think maybe SAG could really appreciate what he's doing there. Um, It's, you know, the physical transformation is often a a big criteria for voting for um, actors. But yeah, I think the movie, while I appreciate its sort of formal graces and the commitment of its performances, I left feeling a bit hollow. And I really don't think that was the intended effect. I know other people have seen it and wept. Um, I think maybe m- one of my issues is that I just, I I don't know anything about wrestling and um, don't really know how this family factored into that, even though the movie tries to tell us that they were a big deal. I just kind of didn't feel it, I guess. Yeah, I had a similar feeling where I also did not know that much about wrestling and felt it almost felt like a fictional family because you didn't get that feeling of their significance in the sport. And I, yeah, I wanted to care about what was happening to these characters, but I, I also, something is missing in the, the heartstring pulling. I couldn't quite get there either. Or we're both just dead inside. Or <laughs> yeah, it's, it it's a tough it structure, be. though. It's a tough structure, though, right? I mean... Yeah, I I didn't know the story, but I knew that this was an incredibly tragic story going into the movie. And so the second you realize what's happening, it's 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 a really grim and and difficult you know situation for I think an audience member to sit through. That doesn't mean that Durkin doesn't invest it with a lot of heart uh, and great filmmaking. Um, but it's it's a yeah it's a tough one, uh, especially like I think in an awards context. I just I don't. I don't know at this stage if it's going to have much of a fight there. I think that their uh, campaign is probably better suited to a real commercial one, which it seems like they've kind of been going in that direction anyway. Um, I did have hope for Zac Efron, who uh, is really revealing himself to be an interesting actor, uh, to pop up at the Globes. I feel like old Globes absolutely would have included him in a list of Mm -hmm. six. And I remember when I was looking at that list and I saw Andrew Scott uh, got in over him because all the strangers does not feel like a globes movie to me. Um, it was like, Oh, the, this body has changed <laughs> a, a little bit. Um, when you say old globes, David, you're referring to all the work that he did, the Shakespeare stuff that Efron has done at the old globe, right? He, he, <laughs> Absolutely. He's a, he has a very famous Hamlet. He's a really good Iago. No, I'm making fun, but it is really exciting to see him 
evolve into this like interesting dramatic actor who plays pain very well. Like he has a sort of hurt in his eyes and and that's really transfixing. I just felt like the movie would get somewhere close to us really feeling his interiority and then it would have to pull away to be like, oh, and then this other horrible thing happened, you know? And I just felt like I wanted to just kind of linger with Efron and his performance more. I'm kind of surprised. I think of the one who liked this the most of all of us. I, I think I agree with you guys. There was an emotional limit for me. And even when it got to the very end where it gets very, very emotional, I thought like it was, it felt like a strange swerve to me. But I thought that the like investment in the world of these brothers, the like the affection between them, you know, they've got these parents played by Holt McElhaney and Maura Tierney, the goddess Maura Tierney. I'm the so go- happy to see her in this The movie. goddess Maura Tierney. Um, and they're basically like, you know, the kids come to them with problems. They're like, you have your brothers for that. Leave me alone. And the brothers really do lean on each other. Like they find this solace and a kind of emotional out, uh, outlet in each other um, that's really moving to watch. And then you kind of watch how the family goes through this world of wrestling, which I, of course, also find very confusing. But I thought it did a good job of not getting too tangled up in, like, is wrestling real or is it fake? And, you know, shows how they organize this, but shows kind of the emotional import of it to them. Like, not about who wins the match, but, like, how you do and how you handle being thrown on concrete by your opponent, which looks horrible. And Efron carries so much of that, you know, his desire to, to prove himself to his dad to be kind of the, like the lead brother, um, and then what happens when it gets overshadowed in that way. I thought the structure of it um, worked really well and not a very typical sports movie format. Um, and then it's it's when you get to the like cascade of tragedies that I think it's hard to keep that structure up and mm-hmm. really makes me understand how they cut an entire brother um, out of who in real life was also there and also died tragically. And I think correctly they were like it would just be too much for the audience to grasp onto um but it really it really worked for me for that long stretch um and you know efron and jeremy allen white i thought were both really great and harris dickinson too that does it for today's show we'll be back next week for our last uh, roundtable episode of the year um, we'll have interviews airing throughout the holiday break but we'll take a little bit of time off Uh, Maybe go catch up with some screeners. Maybe next week we'll tell you which screeners we're finally catching up on. Um, We'd love to hear your questions for us to answer on next week's episode as we wrap up the year. So you can email us at littlegoldmen at vf.com. That's really the best way to get directly to us. But um, you can find us on social media. Um, We're on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. I am all over the place at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylos. And David. David Canfield 97. And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best impression of Judy Dench on the campaign trail for Shakespeare in Love goes to Rebecca Ford. I spent six years practicing six minutes of a performance. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starts in Dea, at the center of a tennis triangle, and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people and a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.